Hello, and welcome to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph. And I'm Ashley Wakefield. And we're here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books, and maybe afterwards you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfair's Christian Church, and I've got with me in the studio, Ashley Wakefield. Hello. Hey, how was your week this week? It's been pretty good. It's actually been pretty good. Yeah? Yeah? Anything uh, exciting that you want to tell all the podcast listeners? Um, I don't know if anything exciting um, has happened, mm-hmm. um, but well, I guess one thing I could say that something interesting that I learned yesterday that I never thought about before this actually related to the Bible is that, um, and it, I guess it's something for everybody to keep in mind if you're if you're interested, which I hope that you are in you know reading the Bible day and night, you know, like the Bible says that we should meditate on it day and night. And so I think from my perspective, what I learned from listening to one of the Bible Projects bo- podcasts um, was that uh, one of the guys, I can't remember his name, one is named John. Yeah, the John one, Collins. I love John. I don't know the other one's name. It was one of them. I Tim don't know. Mackey. <laughs> and so one of them was basically saying that when he was growing up, um, he basically was sort of like ashamed at the fact that he would read the Bible sometimes and not understand it. Yeah, And yeah, felt yeah. guilty about it. And so his his thing was that he just wanted to back away from it so he wouldn't read it from periods of time mm. and so god basically told him that even if you're reading it you don't understand it the most important thing is that you're actually reading it and that if you just stay in it and continue to read it eventually it'll start to make sense to you without you even realizing it and so that's kind of my perspective on it which is very good perspective was that before i heard that my thing was sort of like i had to study the bible and if I wasn't studying mm. it and get anything out of it, there was no point in reading it because it was a waste of time. So I just wouldn't do it unless I had the time to study. So hearing him say that, it was sort of like just reading it is the most important thing. It's not always understanding it. It's just reading it and then letting the understanding basically catch up to you in ways you may not even expect it to. Yeah. And so it was just sort of like, you know, something that simple that was eye opening to me. So That's awesome. Yeah. I uh, I love the Bible Project. I am one of the biggest fans, I will say, because I've probably listened to every podcast episode they have ever put out. And I would say that's probably 200 episodes and they're all like an hour long a piece. And I've yeah, I've probably spent more time. It's it was my number one podcast that I had listened to in 2021. Spotify does that, uh, you know, your year wrapped and it, it quantifies like what you your uh, um, uh, most listened to podcast was and top one was Bible Project. I am an avid fan. I love that thing. And a lot of what you get here on the Boring Bible Podcast is uh, I pull straight from stuff <laughs> I've learned from their podcasts a lot of the time. And I try and read the Bible the way that they've taught people to read the Bible. And it's a great resource. So honestly, I have no shame in saying that uh if you have not listened to this, turn off this podcast right now and go listen to it because I, I like they're better than we are, and it's, <laughs> there, there's some humility in admitting that uh, uh, for sure. But like, yeah, no, they're, they're incredible, and uh, I would totally uh, love to see more fans go over to their podcast because it's great. But. We are, uh, if you're still with us at least, um, we are here in Isaiah chapter 28. We go through uh, 
a chapter a week every time we come and do this podcast. And we are now at chapter 28 of Isaiah. It's been incredible that we've already done 27 chapters. I've been really, it's kind of mind blowing for me to look back at like baby Noah, like six <laughs> months, Noah. Yeah, six months ago and just be like, wow, I, that, that's insane that I've been going through this book this long. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to uh, jump into this chapter. I um, will say on the front end with Isaiah 28, that this is one of the most uh, beautiful chapters I've read so far in Isaiah on a reread of it. I am floored by this chapter and I am not going to do it justice. I can tell you that right now. Um, this is a chapter that I would say, go home, read over and over because it is beautiful. It's got a lot of deep poetic imagery that, um, you know, as I'm explaining it, it'll make sense. But like, I also feel like you'll get things that I miss in this chapter that we miss in this chapter because there's just so much here. And, uh, yeah, it's worth a good week and a half of just rereading this, um, because it is frankly beautiful. Uh, I don't know if that was your experience reading this, Ashley, but, uh, yeah, I was just kind of blown away by it. Yeah. I thought it was beautiful. It had a lot of great imagery, a lot of symbolism in it. And it's definitely something that I wanted to take the time to study, a lot more because I feel like it requires a lot of study to really break down what it's trying to say. I did get some revelation out of it, um, but like you said, I probably wouldn't be able to do it justice on this one podcast. It might take another one to really just, you know, break it down and kind of flesh it out. Um, but I did like it um, a lot. It was like very heavily packed with a lot of um, not just imagery, but like the way it words certain things. Um, there's a specific part about the the drunkenness and the ramble the rambling and how it relates to babes and what they can understand, which I found very interesting. That was one of my favorite parts of this. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it was a good chapter overall. So yeah, it definitely takes a lot of time to go through it and study it. So. Yeah. And I'm totally uh, probably going to make this episode a little longer just so that we can talk about some of that stuff. It just depends on, you know, sometimes I end up getting through things faster than I think we're going to, but I think that this one's probably going to be a little longer of an episode just because it is so rich. I will say one of the things that stuck out to me before we jump in and it's something to helpful to know before we dive into this is that there is a lot of repetition in this mm -hmm. chapter and the repetition is intentional um, there is several times that Israel and Judah Ephraim is sort of the name given by the way for Israel um, and uh, if you've been listening to some of our episodes in the past you know that um, I think I talked about that in uh, Isaiah chapter 7 uh, I believe where uh, Ephraim is the northern uh, country up in the north where Samaria is located and sort of becomes the name for all of the ten northern tribes in Israel and then you have the one tribe Judah in the south but it's all of the land that was ancient uh, Judaism, basically. Uh, and so just keep that in mind uh, that Ephraim is the uh, northern tribe. So we're it's a, an oracle focused specifically on God's people and Israel. And uh, what I think is interesting about the repetition is that you kind of have this back and forth of Israel saying things and then God sort of using what they say as like a judgment against them because they said it the way they said it and it's kind of reinterpreted and it's just a really beautiful way of them getting exactly what they deserve through their own words being their judgment which I think kind of comes into play in the New Testament a little bit where you know uh, the idea of people getting judged and by the way that they judge other people, you know, and how you judge other people, um, is exactly how 
you will be judged. And in this case, they're judging God for being a specific way. And that's exactly how God's going to judge them. And I just think it's really powerful. And we'll get into that a lot as this um, chapter unfolds. But uh, I, th- I think that there is a, a very powerful uh Communicative, uh, communicative, that's a hard word, uh, strategy that's at play here where um, humans are judging God and God turns it on their heads. And so I think it's a really uh, powerful chapter. And I really hope that we can do this justice because I love this chapter so much. So without further ado, Ashley gets to read this mammoth of a mm-hmm. chapter. So let's jump in. Woe to that wreath the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour. He will throw it forcefully to the ground. That wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. That fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, will be like figs ripe before harvest. As soon as people see them and take them in hand, they swallow them. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit and there is not a spot without filth. Who is he trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast? For it is this, Do this, do that. A rule for this, a rule for that. A little here, a little there. Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to his people, to whom he said, This is the resting place, let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose. But they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will become, Do this, do that. A rule for this, a rule for that. A little here, a little there. So that as they go, they will fall backward. They will be injured and snared and captured. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. For we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. The bed is too short to stretch out on, the blanket too narrow to wrap around you. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon, 
to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Now stop your mocking, or your chains will become heavier. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has told me of the destruction decreed against the whole land. Listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. When a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? Does he keep on breaking up and working the soil? When he has leveled the surface, does he not sow caraway and scatter cumin? Does he not plant wheat in its place, barley in its, in its plot, and spelt in its field? His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. Caraway is not threshed with a sledge, nor is the wheel of a cart rolled over cumin. Caraway is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a stick. Grain must be ground to make bread, so one does not go on threshing it forever. The wheels of a threshing cart may be rolled over it, but one does not use horses to grind grain. All this also comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. All right, so this episode, we are walking through one of these uh, really poetic chapters that I find, uh, like I said before, so beautiful. We open up with um, an image of woe to that reef, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards. And this first kind of section is really focused on um, getting drunk, which is definitely a theme that uh, has been come up before in some of the different uh, chapters that we've hit so far. Um, it's been sort of a uh, criticism that God's leveled against his people, and we can definitely see that kind of come here again. We see this uh, nation of Ephraim in particular is sort of the focus at first, and it appears as if they're far more uh, likely to get drunk at, le uh, drunk at least. Um, some people might ask about what is the wreath. Um, yeah, that was the question that I had. And so I was trying to figure out what the wreath was and just reading it. Um, Cause I could, I could be wrong, but it seemed like it was referring to the Valley because it says set on the head of a fertile Valley. Like the wreath was being set on the head of that fertile Valley. Like there was some type of pride um, within it. Like there was like this beautiful Valley that was sort of, you know, people, the, 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 the tribes that lived there sort of, sort of, I don't know how to put it, I want to say take advantage, but they just sort of felt like we have all these, this fertile valley and we don't have to necessarily be obedient to God because we're already living in this blessing. And so it's sort of like they just kind of take off and just get drunk yeah. <laughs> because it's just sort of like, oh, like we're living a good life. Like we got this beautiful valley and it's just sort of like, and eh, God's going to take that away from you. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's actually very locationally situated too. Ephraim is up in the north and is kind of, if you were to think of the entire area that they're given and map out all the tribes, it's kind of the head, if you were to think of it that way. And so Ephraim being located up at the top in the north, being kind of the head of all these different tribes, it's very beautiful. And so it's got all these fertile valleys and things like that. I think that the poet is kind of using all of that kind of locational imagery to kind of situate you in that sort of, oh, this was supposed to be the crown, the wreath of all of Israel, and look at how far it's fallen is kind of your opening kind of scene. Uh, it talks about uh, the Lord being a hailstorm, which I think is uh, very much a theme that you'll see throughout the entire Bible of uh, God being this uh, destructive storm. And uh, I've, I think I've made the comment before, but a lot of worship songs love to say that like God gets you through the storm. Uh -huh. And my inward critic that knows the Bible has always sort of uh, uh, not 
uh, liked that so much because uh, my thought has always been that from a lot of these passages, God is the storm, not yeah. the thing that gets you through it. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's definitely something that I think gets overlooked in a lot of worship music today. <laughs> and yeah. it's something that uh, uh, it's one of those things that I would love to see a worship song uh, done where uh, it actually talks about God being the storm yeah. as opposed to uh, some type of getting through it or whatever. So Yeah, that's you, true. And it kind of alludes. I think the Bible um, has a verse where it talks about God basically sort of throwing storms at people, you know, yeah, so yeah. because he is a storm, he's basically guiding you through the storm, like not leaving your side, but he's there with you. And I think he says that to the Israelites along the way about how he intentionally put them through the wilderness where he was testing them. And basically he intentionally let them go without what they wanted or what they needed for a period of time, just to sort of test them. So he was like intentionally putting them through a storm just to see how they would respond and the decisions they would make. Yeah. According to that. Yeah, no, I I think that that's part of it too, is he's almost the test itself, you know? And uh, yeah, I think that's a a very uh, great way to talk about it. Um, We move from that to uh, verse three, where we're kind of uh, talking about Ephraim's, uh, uh, there's this really interesting poetic thing where, you know, a wreath is something you put on your head, but then that thing is going to be trampled underfoot. So it's almost the head then being put under the foot, which I just think is a, a little bit of a poetic, cool flourish there. You know, you're kind of relating head and toe almost. Um, you then move into the fading flower from their uh, fertile crescent. And I love this this image in the bottom of four where it's uh, they'll be like figs right before the harvest um which uh if you don't i we i actually had a fig tree out at my place and uh for a while and if you don't know what figs look like like as a ripe thing they're kind of shriveled actually like they they look very uh um they don't look as appetizing as you might think they do um but they're very good and uh you when you pick them and uh eat them they're very uh they're very easy to swallow. Like it's just like, it, it's almost like eating butter almost. It's a really yeah. great experience. And uh, yeah, it's, I, I very much relate to this just as someone that has eaten a lot of figs out on my back porch before. Huh. So I, I, I wonder I, if we've had those. Cause I feel like I see something on the back of our trees that kind of look like fruit, but mm-hmm. then they don't, <laughs> they look really gross. <laughs> like almost like big, huge, Raisins? Yeah, uh, probably, probably. It, it's either that or persimmon. Persimmon's the other one that kind of looks like a fig. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not as ovular shaped, but it's more like a an apple shape. But uh, yeah, no, it's it. I I relate a lot to this, and I can see what the poet's doing with this. Um, why he's using fig as an example, um, and then verse five, we have another in that day, which Ashley has talked about in that day. Did you want to recap people about what that means, just really quickly, for people that may not have uh, uh, listened to other episodes of this, Ashley? Yeah. So I think the last thing that I remember saying about in that day, um, I think it was sort of like an alert that when when the prophet would be speaking he would say in that day it was sort of like an alert to the people because the people wouldn't know whether this conversation or this this prophecy is going to lean towards like a judgment or a blessing so it's sort of like a like you you know you kind of better pay attention because you need to really focus on what's going to happen in that day yeah i've been yeah. trying to come up with like a modern example a modern of what example? that phrase would be you know like i uh, maybe like on when you get a letter sometimes if it's like a really serious letter it has the word attention oh, all yeah. in like caps and then like a colon maybe that's like the closest equivalent we can get to yeah. that because sometimes they it's a good thing you know uh, but uh sometimes it's not a great thing so maybe maybe that's a good example for those of you out there um but uh yeah so we have that in the day the lord almighty 
will be a glorious crown. And so I love this imagery. It's like it talks about like Ephraim being this crown and uh, how they've squandered it. And so verse five, it picks that up with, all right, since they've squandered it, the God will take up that mantle and God will be the beautiful wreath. Um, and I just love that. Like it, this is, this is kind of the theme of this chapter is you see the failures of Israel time and time again. And God is the one that ends up taking what they were supposed to be and repurposes it in some way. Um, and I love this uh, verse six. He will be a spirit of justice. Uh, one who sits in judgment. Um, I, I love that idea of God giving the spirit to people, to this remnant of people. And he's like a spirit that lets them decide what's the just decision um, and what's, and gives them a source of strength. Um, I, I think that that's something that we could pray for a lot today because I feel like many people don't have a spirit of justice and are very unfair in their judgments of other people and praying for a spirit of justice. There's a whole sermon in that, honestly, of just calling people to pray for a spirit of fairness and a spirit of justice in, in our world and society. So I think that that's something really deep and profound that you can think on and meditate on for a while. Just do you have a spirit of justice? Um, and then we move on again to another section. You see there's a break and there's verse seven starts a new section where we return to sort of this um, railing against those that have been um, uh, enjoying alcohol way too much. And not we see even kind of the horror of the fact that it's not just the regular people, but it's the priests and the prophets that are staggering from this. You know, they're reeling from it uh, and they're stumbling around and it ends with the most graphic thing. I think I verbally, when I read verse eight, I verbally was like, ugh. Uh, it's just they, they uh, a table covered with vomit because all of them have been like, you know, uh, uh, so for so long, much time they've been uh, 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 spewing forth what they've uh, taken in and uh, it's covered this entire table. Uh, and yeah, it's not a great, uh, not a great scene. Um, and I, I definitely, definitely felt some uh, emotions, I guess, at just how the poet is trying to describe the scene is you can just kind of imagine uh, seeing your leaders in that kind of position, seeing those that you look up to uh, at reduced to that kind of state. Um, and you can just feel sort of the disappointment and the, um, as someone that's had to deal with people that get drunk quite regularly, uh, this, this really spoke to me. So uh, it's just, just part of, part of it. Um, and then, uh, did you have anything you wanted to say to that or, um, you just continuing on for that, which is connected to it. Um, mm -hmm. I really liked verses nine and 10. I also liked the cross reference or actually that, that note on verse 10, where it, um, says what it is in the Hebrew so I can read it, but hopefully I'll pronounce it mm -hmm. properly. Yeah. Hopefully, but it says, um, sav, lasav, sav, lasav. Kav lakav, kav lakav, and it says in parentheses, probably meaningless sounds mimicking the prophet's words. So I guess the idea there was that because they were drunk, that they were trying to speak in prophecy, but nobody could understand what they were saying. And so huh. it's kind of connecting that to like, you know, who is it that they're trying to teach? Are they trying to say this to children and babies who you know it's like babies <laughs> like babies speaking gibberish now you're speaking in gibberish like babies are the only ones that can understand what you're saying so it was kind of like referencing 
sort of that, like the fact that nobody but like a baby can understand what you're saying because you're speaking in the language of an infant. So. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. I would totally have missed that because I did not read that in the Hebrew. So that's really cool. Uh, I That's a little fun little Easter egg there for <laughs> what's going on there. Um, is, the, is, the, is it translated as do this, do that, a rule for that, a rule for that? Is that what it actually is translated as? I can look it up here, actually. I've got a... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's what it is. It's that uh, verse 10 is that sav, sav, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there is sort of the uh, translation of that uh, baby talk. So I think that's really cool. Um, we then move on to uh, verse 11, which I think is a uh, kind of a play on that mm-hmm. where he's like, very well then, uh, with foreign lips and strange tongues, since you're speaking babble because you're so drunk, um, God will speak to this people. And that is a call to... The New Testament and Gentiles being a um, help for many of these people in this situation, um, which is insane that he uses the uh, episode of them being drunk and babbling foreign, uh, inintelligible speech as a way to then turn it on its head and say, this is a prophecy of what will happen in the future where um, people that sound like they're saying foreign things and strange things will actually speak to you. And I just think that that's such a powerful role reversal, you know, and, uh, it's really cool to see that even in verse 11. Um, and I like how he then talks about verse 12, where he says to whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose. This is kind of a theme that takes itself up in Hebrews chapter four, um, where he talks about Israel. Um, what he had promised them was the promised land and it was a place of rest for them. And yet they rejected it, you know, and, uh, this is kind of hearkening Hebrews, I think is pulling from this, uh, verse here to kind of talk about rest a lot more. And it kind of goes in deep, uh, thoughts of, more so about that so uh, it's really cool how you have it even in isaiah they're talking about rest um yeah yeah. and i was going to say like um in verse 13 there's like that repetition from what was repeated in verse 10 yeah and it also kind of makes me think of um even with um the foreigners not just the foreigners um speaking um to the israelites with the idea that even the fact that god wanting to graft in Gentiles and other people outside of the the nation of Israel will be it will be as if God is speaking in a foreign language they can't understand which kind of does go back to the New Testament when Christ would be speaking in parables when he would be speaking about certain things about the kingdom of heaven and people would be listening like the Jews would be listening and they just didn't understand what he was talking about even though they could hear what he was saying they understood the words but they didn't get the meaning behind it so it was sort of like the fact that he was opening up the kingdom to everybody in itself was sort of like gibberish to them yeah and it's just sort of like like the words that christ would speak with just complete confusion to people because they were not properly aligned with him so they couldn't come into agreement with him you know yeah yeah so it's like because of uh this it will cause the gent the gentiles will make them stumble even yeah. which is definitely something you see picked up in acts uh seems like time and time again the jews are always mad at paul because paul is saying that salvation is for the Gentiles and they just can't stand that. So you definitely see kind of a fulfillment of that there. Um, man, I love this. This is so rich. Uh, so you have in verse 14, therefore he, uh, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, you rule this people in Jerusalem. Uh, and so we get to see a little bit of how, you know, they're boasting about how they still, uh, are, uh, you know, 
it in some ways have cheated death, I'm assuming. You know, we, we have Isaiah's language for what they're saying. I don't think they actually were saying uh, we have entered into a covenant with death. Um, and I don't think they were saying uh, when an overwhelming scourge sweeps us by, it can touch us. Uh, it cannot touch us for we have made a, uh, a lie our refuge and a falsehood our hiding place. That's a little on the nose, I think, for them to actually say about themselves. But uh, I think Isaiah is taking their idea their ideas that they had at the time of trying to escape death and uh, trying to live in the ways that they are living currently mm-hmm. through alcohol and these different things and saying, Oh, this isn't bothering us. We're fine, you know, and everything's fine. And I think that he's using those statements and showing them for what they really are, which is boasts about um, being in a covenant with death and boasts about, um, this scourge that's going to sweep by not affecting us and um, them just having this uh, overconfident just sort of view of themselves in the world. And uh, yeah, you can see that God is not okay with that at all. Um, And so you see in verse 16, his response to that, um, which I think is a, another beautiful thing because you would expect judgment at this point and it kind of is but you also have a messiah prophecy Mm -hmm. in here he says see i lay a stone in zion a tested stone a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation if you know your new testament you know jesus refers to himself as the cornerstone that the builders rejected and so you see that all that's kind of tying into this chapter um with this stone this tested stone and that's what he's going to give in response to them having a covenant with death um and uh, I love this idea of making justice the measuring line uh, and uh, righteousness the plumb line. Feel free to look up more about that. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really cool measuring thing. And I was wondering if um, the covenant with death, if that was also a connection with them consulting medium and spirits only because uh, there was a cross-reference to another, um, one of the chapters in Isaiah, I think it was chapter 8, about how um, the people of God were consulting mediums and other spirits um, to get answers and it's sources possible. for things. Yeah, it might be referencing back to that because there's definitely, I can't remember what chapter that comes up in. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a, uh, there. they were definitely consulting mediums and spirits during this time. And so I do think he's using it more as a metaphor in this sense, just mm-hmm. because, it, you know, the last... It, it seems as if they're not actually saying this, you know, and so I think he's pulling a lot of this as like um, his I, w- I guess I'll say I would be more inclined to think it was about mediums and spiritists if uh, his response to it was like far more about uh you know, oh, I'm going to kill the mediums and spirits or I'm going to, you know, yeah. level the people. But his response is more about they've had a covenant with death. Um, and so it seems like he's taking far more of a this is a problem that y'all are dying off, you know. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to send the Messiah, uh, the cornerstone oh, okay, to you. fix this to fix this, you know, uh, and that's what he says in verse 18, where he says, your covenant with death is annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. Um, when the overwhelming scourge sweep by, remember that's a, that's a thing that's been mentioned before. They said that before in their boasts, uh, when the scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it as often as it comes, it will carry you away morning after morning, uh, uh, by day and by night, it will sweep through. Uh, and I mean, I gotta admit that this is kind of what happened as uh, Jesus came on the scene during the first century is it really affected the Jewish people as a result of this. Um, 
The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. The bed is too short to stretch out on, the blanket too narrow to wrap around you. The Lord will rise up as he did on Perazim, or, uh, yeah, Perazim. Uh, and uh, Perazim is just kind of a reference to specific moments that uh, God in the Old Testament uh, was uh, mighty and did impressive feats. And there's a passage in First Chronicles 14:11 um, that talks about David um, mm-hmm. uh, fighting people on a mountain, and uh, the uh, mountain gets called Mount uh, Baal Perazim because it's the place where. Uh, he struck and rose up and struck down so many of the different nations around there. And David said that God broke through my enemies by my hand like a bursting flood. And my assumption is that Perazim has something to do with breaking upon people like a flood. Uh, that's generally how they would name things, is if God did some type of thing like that on enemies in a specific way, they'd name a mountain after the action that God took. So mm-hmm. my assumption is that that's what's going on there. And then uh, he rose himself on Mount Gibeon. That's a reference to Joshua and a battle that took place in Joshua um, to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, task his alien task, which I, I love that. And we've, we've talked about that before in different episodes of how God's task is often very confusing to us and mm-hmm. very alien to us. Um, and it's just a nice little reminder of that kind of theme that's going on. Then he has a command for the people that are listening to this. And he says, stop your mocking um, or your chains will be heavier. And so I love this idea of that they're already chained, right? That's not as if like chains will be put on them. They're already chained probably through the different things that are going on during this time period, the different judgments that have already come on them. And he's saying, you're mocking of God and you being fine and everything being fine is just making this worse. Uh, and uh, the Lord Almighty has decreed destruction on this whole land and you should take it seriously and not just mock it, you know? And uh, I think that that's something uh, as well that uh, today is something that we should think about, you know, and think about how, uh, oftentimes we scoff at um, things that are happening in the world and uh, don't actually give them the serious attention that we need to give them. So uh, it's just something that uh, rubs me the wrong way is when you know someone throws up their hands and says, oh, it's all just like lies and we shouldn't take any of it uh, at face value and it's all a conspiracy or something like that. I think that that's a... Uh, a proper response to that is to now take things seriously when 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 you hear them. So, uh, yeah, it's just just part of it. But then we have in verse twenty three, listen and hear my voice, pay attention and hear what I say. And then we have this farmer imagery that kind of yeah. uh, takes up the last little uh, couple of uh, sections here. And I love this because um, more often than not, if you look at Jesus's parables in the New Testament, Jesus yeah. uses farmer imagery more than any other. I think partially because in the New Testament, most of his listeners were farmers, so they would get it a lot more. Um, but two, I also think that uh, it is tied to this. Like, I think that he uses a lot of the same parables um, that were given in Isaiah. Like, we have already talked about vineyards, and there's a parable of Jesus in the New Testament about vineyards. And now we're talking about farmers, and there's a lot of parables in the New Testament about farmers. I just think that he always has these prophetic books in, in mind, and so when we see these little things, uh, it's a reminder that Jesus maybe not was not as original as we might have thought he was. And he oftentimes 
is just pulling from Old Testament passages that we just haven't read or don't understand very well. And uh, I, I find that time and time again is that some of Jesus's parables, I'm like, oh, that that's actually in in uh, Jeremiah. And I just didn't realize it until I read Jeremiah, you know, and uh, it, it, it's cool to kind of see this ending part where um, the call is really just to um, uh, what I love is how beautiful this ending section is, is that he's not just tearing up the ground and the land for no good reason. He's not just dishing out wrath for no good reason. Yeah. His whole point is that he's going to plant wheat there. He's going to plant barley. Um, he's going to plant things that are going to grow and going to be better. And so his kind of ending to Israel is, look, I'm not coming down so hard on you because I just am angry and that's it. Mm -hmm. I'm coming down on you because I am intending to do something with you that will make you into the nation I want you to be made into. And uh, that relates back to that idea of the cornerstone coming and also mm -hmm. helping with that process. And I just think that that's beautiful how he wraps this up in this parable of does a farmer beat up the ground and, you know, take, take so much uh, threshing to uh, the harvest just for no good reason, even though that sucks for what's being plowed and tilled up. Yeah. Does he do it for no good reason? No, he does it because he's going to plant things. And I think that that's, uh, that's just kind of a beautiful image that I'm going to take with me into my daily life. Sometimes it's sometimes when bad things happen to us, it's just God's plowing our field right now, you know, and it sucks, but you know, uh, from that will come plantings that'll, you know, flourish and you can kind of take a bad thing and turn it into a good thing. Yeah, it's like a temporary amount of pain. It kind of reminds me of how God also uses the reference of childbirth mm -hmm. um, as a way to bring something forth, like how painful the labor is, but then it produces this beautiful child. So it's sort of like the same thing, just from the farmer's perspective. Yeah. You know, so it's a temporary amount of pain that will eventually be relieved and turn into a blessing. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can, it's that uh, a lot of different metaphors have been used, but I, I just love this one in particular. It's one that uh, I think is uh, new and uh, uh, easy to kind of explain in, in specific ways. He talks about caraway not being thrushed with a sledge, you know, which I think is fun. You, you just get these little, like, brief little views into what farming was like for them back then, which is just kind of fun for me as, a, as kind of a nerdy historian. I'm like, oh, that's cool that they threshed caraway with a sledge. Okay, that makes sense. And then they would roll a wheel of a, wheel of a cart over cumin to grind it up. That makes sense. You know, and the caraway is beaten out with the rod. And this kind of ending section is actually, like, the harvesting phase and, like, what the they would do with it once it had grown up and so his point is that there was pain in the plowing and the uh, you know tilling of the soil and then there's also pain that comes with the taking that item and then making it into what you want to do you know grain grain has to be ground into flour to make bread you know and cumin has to be ground over by a wheel so that you can use it as a spice and um, you know these different metaphors of that if you want something really good, you've got to refine it and you got to go through all these different processes. Uh, the wheels of a threshing cart may roll over it. Um, but one does not use horses. To, and I like that little tag away, a throwaway line. I won't uh, claim to know what it means. Uh, the wheels of a threshing cart may be rolled over it, but one does not use horses to grind grain. And I think that's just like a little throwaway line that probably is just referencing the fact that I'm not going to trod you entirely overfoot, but there is this kind of wheel that's going to roll over you, but at least you're not getting trampled by horses, which I think is kind of funny, just kind of a throwaway line there. But I don't 
know why that also kind of reminds me of how God is always saving a remnant. Yeah. It's like you kind of mm-hmm. see like a destruction of something, but then God is still saving something and making it grow, which kind of reminds me of like what he does constantly in this chapter and in other chapters before in Isaiah about he always is saving a remnant. It can be saved after the, to continue worshiping him and doing his will. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. I think I think he's like, it's not going to be total destruction. There's always going to be a, remind, a remainder. All this also comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent, which is perhaps the best way to end this poem ever. Uh, it's just everything, both good and bad, comes from the Lord Almighty. Uh, and uh, it's sort of the poet just... Uh, reminding everyone that his plans are wonderful and his wisdom is magnificent. And I think that's a great way to end it. This is definitely the longest episode we've ever done here. Um, So thank you if you've been sticking around for this whole thing. Did you have any closing thoughts, Ashley, before we end? Um, No, that's it. Um, I guess I do like um, when it says that his plan is wonderful, wisdom, magnificent. It kind of reminds me of um, what it talks about. Was it in Romans? I'm not sure if it was in the book of Romans. It may have been first or second Corinthians, maybe first, but it's when Paul talks about the, the manifold wisdom of God about how basically the Israelites um, were, the Israelites were basically graphed. They were his chosen people. Mm-hmm. And then once um, they started to disobey, it was like, he started grafting in the Gentiles, which made the Israelites jealous, which made them want to come back and worship him all the more, which was kind of the plan all along was to get both of them in together. And so it kind of reminds me of that is that like the Israelites were offended by the fact that God was looking at this other, these other people. And it was like, well, you know, having both of you here was the plan all along. So that was kind of the whole point. And that was just God's way of doing it and how he used wisdom, even in that, like the tension that they had between one another or the Israelites jealousy over the Gentiles relationship with them. Um, to basically bring them back to himself. So. Yeah, the reference you're pulling from is Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Mm-hmm. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracking out. Mm-hmm. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I think that's great. Uh, I think that's a great way to end it too. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode and staying with us this long. We will be back in your feed probably with a shorter chapter next week, I'm going (laughs) to assume. (laughs) Thanks so much. Bye guys. Bye-bye. Thank you.